0: today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by looking at one concept, justification, or how to get to heaven. How are we justified? Did Christ do all of the work through redemption? Do we simply need to believe that his infinite merits are enough, or do we need to do something? This is going to be one of the main sticking points between Protestant and Catholic theology. So Father Loop will help us to understand our own role in salvation. You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to as well as all of the resources we're posting. But if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now, let's join Father Jonathan Loop for episode number 29 of the Apologetics series right now. Well, Father Loop, thank you for joining us again on this next episode of our Apologetics podcast. It is great to have you back. And we were just talking last time about uh, the Bible and about the, the sources of revelation, their hierarchy, scripture, tradition, etc. Today, we're going to be talking um, about The notion of original sin, is that correct?
1: Yes, Um, and precisely the notion of original sin as understood by Protestants in particular, since that shapes a lot of our modern world and is perhaps the chief and underlying difference between the heresy of Protestantism And, you know, the true faith uh, as we have it. So uh, to to understand Protestants at a deep level, this is where we would go. Even if perhaps on a day-to-day level, not every Protestant would have thought through the implications of the teachings of the, the founders of Protestantism. And maybe just to begin that, I think a very interesting way to do so is to give a short quote from a relatively famous sermon that was given by a Protestant in one of the, what was referred to as the Great Awakening in the 1740s. in the At that time, the American colonies, um, it was an effort to stir up religious fervor. And it was in the context of these great revivals and in these meetings that would be occurred where people would basically be invited, as we even now hear to accept our Lord as their saviour and in the context of the sermon Edwards Jonathan Edwards talks to sinners and by which he means effectively anybody and he says before somebody accepts Jesus as their saviour um effectively a man is hated by God (laughs) And he uses some very colourful, let's say, terminology. So to quote him, he says, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire and he looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times more abominable in his eyes, and the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Wow. Wow. It's a charming vision, you might say, And again, he's, you might give him the benefit of the doubt that he's rhetorically exaggerating so as to provoke people to take seriously their need to convert potentially. Sure. And yet, at a deep level, this reflects a vision of man that is a fruit of the Reformation, as it's so called, uh, really the Revolution, and which uh, sees man as truly hateful to God. And, I mean, a Catholic preacher trying to get people to take seriously their sins, to work against them, would never ever, uh, let's say, refer to man as a loathsome insect abominable to God. Okay? And what I think would be good as we walk through this is to really see precisely how this rhetoric flows from that Protestant vision And again this is central Um, so to understand that I'd like to quote from a document that was published in the late 1990s in fact in 1997 called the joint uh, decree on justification which is so it was an ecumenical uh, endeavor taking some Catholics some Lutherans who were trying to resolve these differences about ultimately the question of justification, and in turn, this question of original sin. And they say that one of the parts of the document says that, in fact, the very introduction, that the doctrine of justification was of central importance for the Lutheran Reformation of the 16th century. It was held to be, quote, the first and chief article and at the same time the, quote, ruler and judge over all other Christian doctrines. This doctrine of justification was particularly asserted and defended in its Reformation shape and special valuation over against the Roman Catholic Church and theology of that time, which in turn asserted and defended a doctrine of justification of a different character. From the Reformation perspective, justification was the crux of all the disputes. And justification from what? From original sin, ultimately. Okay. Does that make so, sense? So, so the,
0: it, it does. So the, so the Protestant idea, just as we get started looking at this, the, the, the Protestant notion of original sin is that original sin does exist, but they're going to see it in a very different form than what we saw, for instance, when we were back with. Father McFarland, you know, some 15 episodes ago when we were talking about Revelation and he touched on original sin. That's that's going to be a totally different way of looking at original sin.
1: Exactly. That's a very good point. And precisely, it might be good just to very briefly review some aspects, you know, the Catholic teaching on original sin, you know, just to rem- remind ourselves what we saw, which will help, I think, put in order, put in some context what the Protestants were rejecting, what they were asserting in its place. Now, you know, obviously the, the best uh, or perhaps the most uh, authoritative discussions are going to be at the Council of Trent, um, and from a point of view of theology, is going to be St. Thomas Aquinas, who discusses uh, original sin on the, uh, yes, the Prima Secundae, uh, questions 82 and 83 in particular, and... Um, What St. Thomas, to to look at him a little bit, says is that on the one hand, original sin obviously, most clearly, is a loss of the original justice that Adam and Eve received from God, and all the, what he returns as preternatural gifts. In other words, things which are not as such part of human nature, but which are in accordance with it. You know, an example of that being, um, for example, the um, the question of integrity, which is that perfect and harmonious order of all the different powers of man's soul, and ultimately that subjection of those powers to God, where you have a perfect docility of our mind to the truths that God uh whatever truths God would impart to us. The will is perfectly docile to the intellect, uh, as its higher principle. And all the passions of the soul, which are still there, nevertheless are in the service of whatever man sees by his mind and chooses as good. You know, in, in other words, you know, we see that I, you know, if Adam had I have a work that is going to be a little bit difficult. That passion of, let's say, uh, courage, would correspond with that choice that he makes to pursue that, to undertake it, and give him that oomph, you might say, to fulfill it. Um, And from that perspective, um, those all are lost. Some of the other pretty natural gifts are impassibility, the sense that we don't get sick. We would not have gotten sick in the uh, garden nor would we have undergone death because again death death is an interesting thing for a man in a way it's natural in a way it's not natural so to speak it's it's not or it's natural because anything that's made of different parts especially material parts like our body is prone to fall apart um but it's not natural in the sense that by itself the human soul you know is intended not to die you know our human soul is eternal and therefore should preserve the body in existence so it's the god gave that preternatural gift that we would not die does that okay. make sense so far making sense so far okay now when adam and eve sin they lose all those and perhaps in a way the chief and most important is that question of um of the integrity because in a sense that's going to be just greater or lesser measure at the heart of the catholic vision of original sin and saint thomas at a certain point he asks in the first article actually of question article question 82 when he's asking what's the essence of original sin he says that we have to understand that um mm. That original sin is a habit insofar as it is a disposition resulting from the various parts of the soul. And that's going to be important because this is going to be a huge, this is going to be kind of a fundamental difference between the Catholic perspective and the Protestant. And to quote him more particularly, he says that original sin is a certain inordinate disposition flowing from the dissolution of that harmony of soul. In which original justice consisted okay and he compares that disorder in the soul which is original sin to the disorder of a diseased body where the parts of the body are at variance with one another perhaps an easy example so he would not necessarily have used this example because i don't think uh, science or medical science had identified this more specifically but if you look at cancer where certain cells of the body, for whatever reason, begin to multiply um, without any reference to what's needed, <laughs> you know. So, and they sometimes then impede and uh, damage um, other organs or whatever, you know, just take them over. And so you have this disordered disequ- disequilibrium within the body. And similarly, in the soul. You have these different powers which no longer are integral, they're no longer ordered, you might say spontaneously, to that highest end of man. And as a result, each in a way is seeking their own proper goals, their proper ends, without any coordination. You know, so you're, let's say, just very simply, your stomach gets hungry. It's like, that's the only thing that matters in the world right now and it's the 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 belly does not serve or in that moment now that we have fallen um the purposes of the mind you know and what can happen therefore is that not only that but especially the lower powers in their pursuit of their proper goods were uh, in a way constituted by our nature in such ways to follow them because they're more immediate you know, obviously, it's much quicker thing to partake of the joy of a Snickers bar or whatever, you know, candy you may happen to like than to grasp the beauty of an intellectual truth. And that's deepened by the fact that we're familiar. We're, we can say, habituated from a very basically our infancy to follow those passions. You know, because when you look at a little child, you know, you that that child is affected by original sin, meaning that there's not the disposition of the soul to obey reason. You know, Saint Thomas actually, because you know, they, they you know, if a child had been Saint Thomas actually asks, you know, would a child when they were born in a, uh, the garden would they have come out knowing everything? You know, because otherwise, how are they how are they going to obey reason? And he's like, no, they'd still have to learn, but they would have been properly disposed to follow the direction of their parents with great docility as opposed to now i remember a story of one one of my friends who this is a long time ago that he told me about this but uh he was uh, babysitting for one of his other friends families they had a little two-year-old girl at the time and the little girl was playing with a book and she kind of got the book and kind of got in that position where you know you can tear the book and the guy looking at her is like don't you dare do that you know, <laughs> right at him and, you know, yep. that immediately. So, in other words, that interaction wouldn't have happened in the state of original justice. The child, like, oh, right. okay, you know, this, this is what I need to do. Right. Um, and so the child doesn't have the disposition to obey reason. And the first things that are active are those passions. And necessarily, they get used to following them. You know, it's just, there's no way around that. And of course, that's a big part of education is training those passions so that later on they're going to cooperate with, as opposed to obstruct the work of the higher powers, the will and the the reason. Um, now, with that in mind, I think a very important um, uh, important observation is that the each of the powers and the appetites. Of the soul nevertheless remain fundamentally good they're aimed at true goods proper to our nature Um, and an action which intrinsically is good but which is out of order potentially you know in other words it's good to eat that's actually a virtuous action it's something that we sustain our life by and as a result obey god the difficulty is of course is that if we follow it, you know, out of order with what's necessary to survive. Um, And so these all of these powers, they're intrinsically good, but they're not working together. And St. Thomas says a little bit later, so in the fourth article of that same 82nd question, that uh, with the bond of original justice dissolved, under which all the powers of the soul were contained in a certain order, every power of the soul tends to its proper movement all the more vehemently as the power is stronger now the context of that question is in fact or that article in particular is is original justice or original sin the same in all people and if if that's the case then why do some people have a harder time not sinning than others hmm. and his action or his answer is simply okay look basically since all the powers are going in their own directions people who have a certain bodily makeup Which are let's say it's going to make them more prone To a certain passion or make that passion stronger in them Well, because there's not that order they're going to be going that much more powerfully in that direction You kind of see that with like little kids who have a lot of energy, you know, it's they just go off in that direction Okay Um, And of course at the same time we can and this is something that Archbishop Lefebvre used to like to comment on which st. Thomas does observe is that there can be said to be wounds in the principal powers meaning that um, Let's say they do have a certain weakness in obtaining Especially when we look at the higher powers their proper object and um, for the lower powers a harder time being subject to their higher powers um, meaning that so for example with the intellect we speak of the wound of ignorance which means it's harder to learn harder to retain knowledge etc it's not that it's the knowledge is not good it's just we have a harder time grasping it you know it's a little weak in its prosecution of that similarly with the will the will still seeks good things in itself but sometimes, let's say we're inconstant. You know, we all have that problem. You know, think of our Linton resolutions. You know, so this will be good, great. And something comes up, and we kind of fail because of that inconstancy, that weakness, the will to perse- persevere in what it's trying to do. And of course, with the concupiscible pa- um, um, power of that desire, there, in a way, we're too strongly driven towards it that's that's how the wound manifests itself there um you know and it's as a result we're very prone to seeking sensible goods too much more than which is proper more than what's necessary uh for our higher purpose as a man okay so it's not they're not bad as such it's not bad to be hungry it's not even bad to seek to be a father or a mother you know, in, in that proper sense of the term, it's just that often they those passions be, become too uh, directed towards their proper object in a way that's contrary to the law of God or the higher purposes of man. Does
0: that yeah. make sense? So ge- it does. So generally speaking, what, what original sin did, just to, if I can kind of try to sum up what you've just been saying, is, you know, man is good, he still has the um, the ability to seek after good, he is still made for the purpose of good. But original sin is kind of broken. There's that little chink in, in the link, where the the will, the appetites, and the you know the the intellect. There's just kind of that break there, or it's weakened, or there's kind of like a straw in a water glass where it's just slightly distorted, and so we're unable, uh, often or apparently unable to to seek after the what is good all the time or the true good all the time. It's just that that it's just not available to us all the time unless we work at it and unless we develop right. the virtue and that takes time and effort. Correct.
1: And even you know, and from a certain point of view, from a certain point of view, we could say that even now we seek true goods. The problem sure. is not what we're seeking, but rather the fact that let's say there's not that proper hierarchy. Our, right. our nature at this point is not is wounded from the point of view we don't seek the proper hierarchy even on the natural level even on the natural level and all the more so i mean if we start considering the supernatural order um, you know so and, and that's i think actually one important qualification here is that with original sin um, we also lose merit we lose the right to receive grace uh, which is the necessary um, means by which to be united to god so not only uh we have so that's grace is even in the original justice is a gift of god it's not something due to human nature as such but now with original sin not only is that grace uh say not a due to human nature but it's also withheld as a punishment justly Mm -hmm. okay because they turn away from god um and so there's that side of it as well. But even if we look just at how it affects our human nature, that's kind of what we were discussing. It's it's this dissolution, is the word that St. Thomas says, a dissolution of that link, of that bond by which all the powers of the soul were made through that gift of integrity to work together. And because of our constitution, that means that we're prone, especially to be given to um, lower goods, especially sensible goods, or let's say uh, flowing from that love of money, whatever. Um, And let's say, so we can by as you were saying, work out and develop a certain, we can develop a certain natural goodness and virtue. People like Aristotle, these pagans, they talk about that. but it's a very difficult, very long process, and even if one successfully does that, can do nothing to help man uh, earn heaven because it's not proportioned to the end of that God proposes to us.
0: Okay, so that's kind of our recap of of the Catholic teaching of original sin, what it does to us. Could we then pivot father to Protestant teaching? We've already you kind of gave us a, a preview of it already, um, but it, I think the the biggest difference, if I'm understanding your intro correctly is that instead of the Catholic notion where man is still good and still pleasing to God, but damaged, um, the Protestant notion broadly is that man is hateful to God. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yes. And when, when we say man is pleasing to God, obviously that means as a creature, as in the sense of still fundamentally sound, um, but not of course, by grace, he's not pleasing to God by grace and as a result is still prone to do things that will lead to hell. Mm -hmm. But to come back now, yes, to come back to the Protestants, um, we can say that their vision of original sin, it's it's interesting reading about this, I mean, um, if they are logical, it's, it's a terrible, terrible doctrine. And I think, in a way, it's one of the things behind a lot of the despair of modern man in many respects. Um, And also the very, very sharp, um, let's say, rejection of Christianity in many aspects of the modern world. But so I would say if we look at what they have taught, there may be four major points to, to, to grasp about what they say. And each of which will play its part in understanding this whole argument about justification, whether by faith or by works and what that means. So in the first place, as we've really already discussed, is that um, for in the Protestant vision, uh, original sin makes man as such hateful to God. Um, by nature, so to speak, and they, they make they do try and I'll quote a passage where they do try to say, OK, there's this distinction to the nature and the original sin as such. Uh, the original sin being just this profound corruption but in the end it works out practically being that man as man is now hateful to God so the first maybe passage that I think uh, helps to see that comes from John Calvin um, uh, the author of the Institutes of Religion and of course um, the founder of the Calvinists and he says in that work, uh, Nay, their whole nature is, as it were, a seedbed of sin, and therefore cannot but be odious and abominable to God. Hence, it follows, that it is properly deemed sinful in the sight of God. for there could be no condemnation without guilt. Yeah, so, um, nature, man's... The whole nature, their whole nature, is odious and abominable to God. To be a man means that you are, as such, hateful to God at this point. Um, And again, a little bit later on, he says, "...the two things therefore are to be distinctly observed, that being thus perverted and corrupted in all the parts of our nature, we are merely, on account of such corruption, deservedly condemned by God, to whom nothing is acceptable but righteousness, innocence, and purity. And one other quote here, this quote's now coming from the a work that was actually put together by a number of early Protestant theologians who were trying to... Uh, reconciles some of the divergencies early divergencies that were cropping up and it's called the formula of concord the solid declaration um, and here we read and they have a long discussion of original sin you know where they're trying to really hammer out what they mean by it and there we read and original sin is called by dr luther a quote nature sin or person sin thereby to indicate that even though a person would think speak or do nothing evil which however is impossible in this life since the fall of our first parents his nature and person are necessary are nevertheless sinful that is thoroughly and utterly infected and corrupted before god by original sin as by a spiritual leprosy think so if we think about that the original sin is a nature sin a person sin so even if we don't do any actual sins what that's what they mean if you don't think speak or do nothing evil if you don't commit a single actual sin nevertheless because of original sin you are evil before god his nature and person are necessarily sinful so when you go to confession so to speak it's not to say i did this or that but i am me person i am me i'm sorry god for being me is ultimately what you could work that into if if you take that principle and apply it in
0: that way Can I, can I ask a quick question and maybe you're going to answer this, uh, but just a quick rebuttal again, just trying to be fair. There are, and I don't have any off the top of my head right now, but there are many, many prayers in the Catholic church that talk about, you know, they say things like, you know, I am, I am a sinner. I am uh, unworthy before your eyes. Oh Lord. You know, you know, know the kind of prayers that I'm talking about, Mm. that is a common um, theme In much of Catholic teaching and at least in our prayers um, so then how is that definitely distinct from what you're saying here father where uh, we are hateful in the eyes of God okay it's a good question
1: and I think in a sense we could say that there's two answers to that so on the one hand typically when we have those prayers pray for like the Hail Mary pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death Okay. So, on the one hand, uh, we're most concretely praying for mercy on behalf of our actual sins. You know, that's that's the the chief thing that we're praying for. Uh, and obviously, all of us, as Saint Paul says, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, which which means we've all fallen into actual sin. Okay. Um. And so that's one way of keeping that in mind, and that's important. On the other hand, at the same time, the original sin does precisely leave those wounds, that disorder in the soul, which is not taken away even through baptism, and as a result of that, we're prone to sin, you know, we do have that, as is called typically concupiscence, or what St. Thomas will call a little bit later, the fomes of sin is kind of a term, And that means that, unfortunately, given our condition, and particularly without God's healing grace, we're prone to sin, and to that extent, can be considered, in a very loose sense, the term um, as uh, as sinners in a conditional way. Okay. Okay. Um, And nevertheless we're not talking about something which means that every single motion that we have is as such sinful as such and i mean this we will come into this uh, in a moment um because we can let's say for example we can perform naturally good actions that are in accord with our nature, and to that extent are in accord with the will of God, even if that does not by its nature, but not sufficiently earn grace, it it cannot demand grace because there's no proportion between a naturally good action and the gift of God's grace. But at the same time, and St. Thomas will say that uh, on occasion, a man who is, let's say, making a serious effort can be well disposed for grace. You know, and in a way, not as a debt of justice, God nevertheless can typically grant grace to those who are disposing themselves to it to an extent. He has he has another long section on this in his treatise on grace, a little bit later in the Summa, in that same uh, section. Okay. Does that does that make uh, answer your question sufficiently
0: for the moment? It does. Yes. Thank you. Okay.
1: And so the next, the next of the four major points that I was commenting on, I think begins to answer that question. Okay. Okay. And so we said, firstly, man is such man as man at this point is hateful to God, his nature, his person, that nature, sin, person, sin, that's abominable to God, or to use that language of John Calvin. Um, now, the second thing is that you have original sin produces a complete corruption of human nature. A complete corruption uh, firstly that means that man's nature as such is at this point sinful and here i'll quote from an article written by a protestant more recently let me just try to pull up her name real quickly so uh, a protestant named harma may smith um, in an article that she wrote to explain the the nature of luther's teaching on original sin trying to articulate from that Protestant point of view what we're dealing with. And so she says there, she actually quotes another author, a biographer of Luther, uh, saying, so Roland H. Bainton, this is a person she's quoting, underscores this in his biography of Luther, which is titled Here I Stand. He writes, there is, according to Luther, something much more drastically wrong with man than any particular list of offenses which can be enumerated, confessed, and forgiven. The very nature of man is corrupt. The penitential system, by which he means the Catholic teaching, okay, look, if you sin, you can go to confession, gives you grace, it restores you to God's favor, etc. Because it is directed to particular lapses, what we would call actual sins. Luther had come to perceive that the entire man is in need of forgiveness. Again, to put it like, you go into confession, please forgive me for being a man. Please forgive me, if if you again use that term, person sin, please forgive me for being me. (laughs) I'm sorry for being me. Okay. And again, to quote once more, uh, going back to that, um, the uh, formula of Concord, we read there, and first, it is true that Christians should regard and recognize as sin not only the actual transgression of God's commandments, but also that horrible, dreadful, hereditary malady by which the entire nature is corrupted, and above all things, be regarded and recognized as sin, yea, as the chief sin, which is a root and fountainhead of all actual sins. Okay. Um, right. And a little later on, it says that original sin in human nature is not only this entire absence of all good in spiritual divine things, but that instead of the lost image of God and man, it is at the same time also a deep, wicked, horrible, fathomless, inscrutable, and unspeakable corruption of the entire nature and all its powers. Especially of the highest principles, principal powers of the soul in the understanding, heart, and will. So now that the fall, man inherits an inborn wicked disposition and inward impurity of heart, evil lust, and propensity. That we all, by disposition and nature, inherit from Adam such a heart, feeling, and thought as are, according to their highest powers and light of reason, naturally inclined and disposed directly contrary to god and his chief commandments yea that they are enmity against god especially as regard divine and spiritual things so that's a longer quote but again to break that down what that means is that this original sin is something really positive in man now and in fact this leads to the next point that i wanted to make when we say that man's nature is corrupt that each power in particular is also affected and turned away from its proper purpose so that in fact the mind by what it's inclined to do and the will are at enmity with god necessarily you know whatever movement is of them is at odds with god as a result, and they do mention that okay, look, you can have natural external things subject to reason; they can still be a certain power. But all they mean ultimately by that is that we can manipulate things around us and we can figure out how to do that. But in fact, if they, you know, if we take that principle that they're saying that the nature is so corrupt that everything that we seek is opposed to God, then every action that we make, every single decision we pursue is, by its definition, sinful and offensive to God. You you think of the heart. Your fact that you love this woman, that's sinful. Ultimately. If if they are, you know, if they're logical. And again, so that means that each of these powers, um, you know, so the will and the reason are directed to evil objects. Again, it's not a matter of, okay, look, they're directed to something that's proper to them, which is good for nature as such, and which, if well-ordered, would lead men to God, even on the natural level, you know, at least as far as man can naturally attain to God, but that it's fundamentally bad. And this is part of the reason, you know, you I'm sure you know, many of us have heard uh, some of those uh, quotes from Luther where he attacks reason. says that reason is, um, you know, to simplify the whore of the devil. I was was reading some Protestant uh, apologists who were commenting that oftentimes it's somewhat, let's say, taken out of context in the sense that sometimes when he says that, he's trying to say, he's trying to argue against what he views as heretics of one group in particular, like the Anabaptists, um, who were against all law and people who would deny the sacraments. And so he says, okay, look, they try to reason this out, and that leads them against the faith, and that's bad. Um, But what you can also drive into, or delve into that, is that reason cannot help us to explicate the faith. And if we try to use our reason, we try to think things through, it's going to give us serious problems with respect to the faith. And so we shouldn't use the reason at all. And so just one or two quotes. This is from a sermon... Several sermons, actually, he says reason is and should be drowned in baptism, and this foolish wisdom will not harm you if you hear the beloved Son of God saying, "Take eat, this is my body which is given for you, this bread which is administered to you, I say is my body." If I hear and accept this, then I trample reason and its wisdom under foot and say, "You cursed whore, shut up! Are you trying to seduce me into committing fornication with the devil?" That's the way reason is purged and made free through the Son of the word, word of the Son of God. In other words, you cannot figure anything out. You cannot explicate this. You simply crush it. And in that way, by crushing it, you purify it. And then he finishes by saying so let us then deal with the fanatics as the prophets, fanatics are these who deny the sacraments, as the prophets dealt with the spiritual harlots, the idolaters, the wiseacres who want to do things better than God does. We say to them, I have a bridegroom. I will listen to him. Your wisdom is utter foolishness. I destroy your wisdom and trample it underfoot. So you notice he doesn't say they've made a mistake. They've made, you know, in other words, they don't have wisdom. They've erred in making a judgment on under apparent reasons, but which can be accounted for. Rather, it's okay. We're going to crush reason. Okay. And another quote. Where he says, this from a sermon on St. Matthew's Gospel. And again, he's talking, the immediate people that he's talking about are Anabaptists, other heretics. Uh, but Again, they argue, how can children believe, seeing that as yet they have no reasoning power? So this whole question, in fact, that later Protestants will deal with, well, can you have children baptism? Thus they add reason to faith. To this Christ answers, that is exactly why children can believe better. They cannot reason, for reason is directly opposed to faith. This is why you must let reason go. It must be killed and buried in believers. But these Anabaptists turn turn reason into a light of faith, so that reason may serve faith as a guiding light. I hold that it does shine forth as smudge in a lantern. So reason is like smudge in a lantern in this case. Christ wants us to turn into veritable children if we desire to come into the kingdom of heaven. He means that at all, as all reasoning is, so to speak, still buried in children, so reason is also to be killed in all Christian believers. Otherwise, faith has no place in them, for reason opposes faith. So ultimately, reason is so wounded that it opposes the truth of God. What it proves, so to speak, to be true is contrary to God. In a way, you know, you can sense that's uh, one of the foundational, you might say, characteristics of the modern world is there is this belief that faith and reason are necessarily opposed, that they prove different things. And you have to effectively either choose one or the other.
0: Does that make sense? It's it does and it's it's interesting because it's um you see the effects of this moving forward into the modern world where it's you know you see all of these you know s- scientists who say certain things now I I know I know I'm kind of diving into a hot top topic issue with you know science medical research et cetera but that is all part of the faculties and the gifts that God has given us and so if there are good scientists who are doing good research. We shouldn't dismiss them. We shouldn't dismiss right. what is to be true if that comes through reason. Um, Correct. Generally speaking, uh, but but you, well, you no. do see this tendency where where it's often well we can't trust what they are saying. Well, that's you know the you know showing uh, the geology or showing the age of the earth. Well, we just have to dismiss that because that's contradicting what the Bible literally says about you know the earth being created in seven literal Correct. days. That's where you get into a lot of that. That issue with uh, mm-hmm. especially the fundamentalist Protestants.
1: Correct. You know, and the whether the church has looked at this very question is like, no, look, you know, the reason can figure out the truth. And what that really means is that, okay, um, what truths the mind, the human mind can discern on its own are never going to be opposed to what the faith teaches. Now, there may be occasions where we get misled by an apparent reason. And we make a false conclusion as a result that may seem to oppose the faith. But all that means is that there has been an error at some point in the reasoning. And that if we go back and analyze things more closely, we'll be able to resolve that apparent contradiction. Well, that's that's absent in Luther. Yeah, so one or two more quotes. And again, just to show this, this is a consistent overall vision. Um, that's pretty uh constant through these thinkers. So uh, again from this article by Harma May um, sorry apologize, Miss Smith. Um, she says that the reformed interpretation would emphasize that spirit and reason are bent away from God as well. and so a conflict between desire, concupiscence, spirit and reason would be meaningless as a barometer of sinfulness before God. In other words being sinful is not in other words oftentimes we'll say that sin, part one of the aspects of sin is that it's opposed to reason we act in a way that's contrary to reason which goes back to that idea that our lower faculties are meant to serve our reason which is aimed most directly at God um, and is through which we attain to God even supernaturally by the virtue of faith you know without faith it is impossible to please God and we'll see again that's from the catholic perspective as opposed to the protestant understanding of it um but here that doesn't mean anything you know to sin to go against your reason is not as such sinful it destroys fundamentally that ability to think about okay what actions are good or harmful and therefore let's say to that extent pleasing to god and then again john calvin once more from the institutes of religion he says for our nature is not only utterly devoid of goodness but so prolific in all kinds of evil that it can never be idle. Those who term it concupiscence, use a word not very inappropriate, provided it were added. This, however, many will by no means concede that everything which is in man, from the intellect to the will, from the soul, even to the flesh, is defiled and pervaded with his concupiscence, or to express it more briefly, that the whole man is in himself nothing else than concupiscence. You know, so in other words, it's not just a deregulation of our powers, but our powers themselves are diso- you know bad and defiled, pervaded with concupiscence. Right. So, what I would suggest then is um, two more points maybe just to, these are just really conclusions so we may not necessarily need to spend so much time on them. But the first of them is that this corruption of man's nature and of his powers produces an active inclination to sin, an active inclination to sin. Um, so again going with Miss Smith or Mrs. Smith, in this work on the Romans, Luther also works out the sinfulness of believers. One of the reasons Luther was so radical is related to his second assertion that an active sinful nature still operates in a believer and that therefore a person can be simultaneously saved and a sinner. You know, so you're both at one and the same time pleasing to God and hateful to him. So we'll see how that can happen. Okay. And a little later on, she says that the reformed definition of sinful nature would not be a loss of control over human desires, but rather the active sinful bend in every human desire. Think about that. Every human desire. Young man falls in love, sin. You want to help somebody, sin. There's something actively sinful in everything that you choose to do. And, um, yeah, to to quote then Luther in his commentary in the uh, letter of the Romans, he says, But what then is original sin? According to the apostle, it is not only a lack of good quality in the will, nor merely the loss of man's righteousness and ability. It is rather the loss of all his powers of body and soul, of his whole outward and inward perfections. In addition to this, it is his inclination to all that is evil, his aversion against all that which is good, his antipathy against light and wisdom, his love for error and darkness, his flight from and his loathing of good works, and his seeking after that which is sinful. And then just lastly, John Calvin again, says next comes the other point, that this perversity in us never ceases, but constantly produces new fruits. In other words those works of the flesh which we were formerly describing just as a lighted furnace sends forth sparks and flames or fountain without ceasing pours out water hence those who have defined original justice the want of original righteousness which we ought to have had though they substantially comprehend the whole case do not significantly enough express its power and energy for our nature is not only utterly devoid of goodness but so prolific in all kinds of evil that it can never be idle. This is amazing. It's like everything you do, everything right. you're inclined to do, is sinful and hateful to
0: God. Right. Everything. And every everything that you want to do is is like he said, pouring out of us like a furnace of of sin. Everything. Yeah. Every desire, every action, everything that we. Ooh. It's a tough way to live. Right.
1: Yeah, it's, it breaks one's mind, ultimately, I would say, hmm. um, because we're, it flies in the face of really just common sense. And at the same time, it really and deeply, as I think we'll see a little bit more when we look at this question, justification, it really and deeply uh, undermines the sense of God's justice and decency towards us. And just as a kind of a conclusion on this, looking really quickly back at St. Thomas, he makes a point in that question 82 um, on when he's talking about the essence of original sin and saying that, look, original sin is not a habit in the sense that it actively inclines one to an action. So in other words, You know, it's not actively inclining us to sin as such. You know, and that's where he was saying as we began, where he was saying that it is a habit in the sense where you have this disordered disposition of all these parts that aren't working together. okay, And therefore, it's likely to mess up because of that disjunction of these powers. Um, And that's important. You know, whereas it's whereas for the Protestants, it is an active, it's a habit in that way. So to speak, which is inclining us actively to act sinfully and uh, against the law of God. Now, the last point, this will lead more directly into the question of justification, is that original sin is fundamentally not removed by baptism. <laughs> so, for example, to quote, quote Miss Smithigan, she says that original sin. According to the Belgic Confession, so some Belgian Protestants who made this profession, corrupts the entire nature of man. And they say, as this is a quote of this confession, As a root, it produces in man all sorts of sin. It is therefore so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn the human race. It is not abolished nor eradicated even by baptism. For sin continually streams forth like water welling up from this woeful source. And wow. the point there being, you know, if uh, all of our sinful actions are a fruit, direct consequence of our bad nature, then how do you account for them after you've been baptized? Well, the conclusion that opposes itself is that the original sin is still there. And that's going to be what we'll see that. Man can be at the same time justified and a sinner. Okay. And together with this, that means that man cannot cooperate with grace. And that's a huge point. Because man's will, in fact, I'll begin by saying this, quoting another Protestant, a guy, a gentleman named John Piper, who I think is somewhat prolific. And so he begins a little passage, he quotes Luther, saying that this is my absolute opinion. He that will maintain that a man's free will is able to do or work anything in spiritual cases, be they never so small denies Christ. This I have always maintained in my writings, especially those against Erasmus, which he's referring to work called On the Bondage of the Will, which is a back and forth between Erasmus. Now, Piper comments, he says that he doesn't mean that the will is inactive. He means that wherever it is active in faith and obedience, God is decisively acting, creating, and fulfilling the acts. In other words, man is not cooperating. If man's will is basically being made to act a certain way by God in that instance. And this is consonant with a very famous quote from Luther that is in fact in that passage on the bond into the human will, where he says where he says this, thus the human will is placed as a sort of pack horse or beast of burden in the midst of two contending parties. If God hath mounted, it wills and goes wherever God pleases. As the psalmist says, I am become as a beast of burden and I am ever with thee, If Satan, though, hath mountain, it wills and goes wherever Satan wants. Nor is it in its own choice to which of the two riders it shall run, or to seek its rider. For the riders themselves contend for the acquisition and possession of it. There's no choice involved. Either God's in charge, or the devil is. And fundamentally, the only decisive thing is whether God wants to be in charge of your soul or not. So we're very much on the edge of, you know, what will be very art- clearly articulated in John Calvin of predestination.
0: Right. Okay. That's exactly where I was going to go with it because then, so, so you have no free will. You are evil by nature. And so if God decides to step in and just move you like a, a chess piece, then he can. And that's yeah. good. Otherwise, Satan is moving you through the rest of your life and you're evil. Yeah. It. Yep. Huh.
1: And here I'd like to go back just to kind of, um, yeah. Um, well, actually, no, I'll quote one thing from John Calvin that's along these lines as well. So Calvin, again, in the Institute says, Hence it follows that that part in which the dignity and excellence of the soul are most conspicuous, therefore the intellect and the will, has not only been wounded, but so corrupted that mere cure is not sufficient. There must be a new nature. So man's nature, man's intellect and will must not it's not a matter of curing them, healing them. We speak of Gratia Sanans, healing grace, and Gratia elevans, elevating. He says that's that doesn't no, that doesn't exist. There must be a new nature. Basically, God must create a new, something entirely different. And if finish this section before concluding overall. Uh, I'd like to go back to that joint declaration on justification issued in 1997 again by some Catholics, some Protestants, some Lutherans. Um, it says, according to Lutheran teaching, human, human beings are incapable of cooperating in their salvation because as sinners, they actively oppose God and his saving action. So in other words, you're so corrupt... You, everything in you, every spontaneous thing welling from inside you is opposed to God. And as a result, you cannot cooperate with him at all. So Lutherans do not deny that a person can reject the working of grace. When they emphasize that a person can only receive mere passive justification, they mean thereby to exclude any possibility of contributing to one's own justification. But do not deny that believers are fully involved personally in their faith, which is affected by God's word. But ultimately, if you look at what they mean by that, it's passive justification. I do not contribute. I do not choose. And if, let's say, after justification, I can be said to choose good, it's because God's acting in me. Not because I, as such, through the nature I've received from him, am assenting to that. And choosing it. Okay, and we'll see that obviously the implications for this question of works. okay. And clearly as a result, well in fact just to conclude, uh, this doctrine regarding original sin fundamentally underlies that controversy surrounding the question of the relationship of faith and works. And this, What we're seeing here I think already is going to point in the direction how Protestants are going to understand works. And why, for example, they're going to claim effectively that Catholics are Pelagians, meaning that Catholics teach that you yourself somehow work out, you merit salvation without God, ultimately. Um, and yeah, so it's to return to uh, um, Jonathan Edwards. um Again, that spider that's hanging over this pit of hell is never fundamentally changed. God simply chooses not to throw it in. That's salvation. Okay? But that fundamental loathsomeness, God's never going to love the spider. He puts the spider on the side of the vast pit of uh, fire. It's still going to be a spider. It's just not been thrown into this combustion you know, and it's, in a way, it's also along the lines of that famous passage is often ascribed to Luther, which I haven't had a time to verify. I might try to do that before the next recording that man, a redeemed man, is a pile of dung covered over by snow. That covering of snow is the grace of Christ. But fundamentally, you are still dung. Um, and again, even if those exact words aren't used, it's the tenor of his teaching. So, yes, with that, I think we can probably bring this to a conclusion unless you have any questions before a little later on coming back to justification.
0: No, no, I don't. And, I, and that is fascinating. And and I'm interested to kind of take the next step down, down this rabbit hole and kind of see where, uh, where this goes, because, um, and I think you gave us a, a nice teaser that, yeah, this is eventually going to lead to predestination, that man has no... Uh, willpower because his will is effectively dung, which, I mean, to be fair, sometimes my willpower is dung, but not all the time, hopefully.
1: Well, yeah, no, and I think the thing is, it's never simply done. St. Thomas says that in each particular circumstance, we are so much, we have sufficient liberty of will that we can avoid sin in each particular instance. The sure. difficulty being that obviously oftentimes we're um, really kind of uh, let's say crowded with a lot of different temptations at once and given our weakness we're not able to fight them all so it's impossible for any man globally to avoid sin um and you know oftentimes and that's one of the unfortunate aspects of our modern world is we our will is terribly weak firstly by that wound of original sin And then secondly, by our habituation, oftentimes as when we're young, we're kind of trained to give way to our impulses at the moment, which which is really our passions and the whims, whatever strikes us. And so we have a hard time choosing a path or something to do and a hard time persevering in that choice because, let's say... um, we we face an obstacle we get discouraged it becomes less immediately appealing to persevere in it and for any of those responses we give up we don't see it through and mm-hmm. then and then the overall atmosphere of the world in which we live militates against developing the will you know it's in mm-hmm. fact precisely a lot of these social media sites they're designed to destroy willpower because you know, they're, they're preying on that impulsivity that we have trying to draw us in with novel things, notifications and stuff like that. So as soon as it's like Pavlov's dog, ding, check my phone, you know, or whatever.
0: Right. Father, that was fascinating. Thank you for taking the time to go through it all with us and uh, looking forward to the next episode where we're going to dive even further. So thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.